Hi everyone and welcome to this Freshfields podcast. I'm Alistair Mordant and today's episode is the second in our quarterly series looking at developments in foreign investment review. This is one of the fastest changing areas of global regulation and a major challenge for any business looking to grow across borders. If you're interested in finding out more about these issues, as well as listening to this podcast, you can read our quarterly report, Foreign Investment Monitor, which you'll find on our website at freshfields.com. I'm delighted to be joined by three colleagues today, each experts in FDI regulations, and they're going to help me analyse recent developments across the world, and more importantly, provide some practical guidance on what companies should be doing in response. First of all, Michelle Davis, a partner in our London office. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Al. Good to be here. And Christine Lasiak, a special counsel in our DC office. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alistair. And finally, last but not least, Aude Guillon, a counsellor in our Paris office. Welcome, Aude. Thanks. Hi. Michelle, let me kick off with you and the UK, given its new national security regime is finally coming into force in a few months. Can you tell us a bit about the regime and how it's going to work? Sure, Al, no problem. So I'm, I'm relieved it's finally coming into force because we've been talking about this regime for the last three or four years, uh, always on tenterhooks, waiting to see when it will actually happen. So the new regime is going to commence on the 4th of January 2022. And it's been described by the UK government as the biggest shakeup of the UK's national security regime for, for 20 years. And importantly, it's going to be the first time that the UK will have a mandatory and suspensory regime for certain investments. Transactions involving acquisitions of shares as low as 25% in 17 identified sensitive sectors will require notification to the UK government for clearance before they can close. And there are really strict penalties for companies who complete transactions without this clearance. Not only will the transaction be legally void, but you can actually end up in prison for failing to make a filing. So nothing like, you know, getting executives to focus than, than to hear that. Now, importantly, while only certain transactions will be subject to the mandatory regime, the government will have wide powers to call in any transactions that, that meet the criteria where they think those transactions may give rise to national security concerns. And I think there's an important point to note about this regime. First of all, there are no de minimis thresholds. Um, so it doesn't really matter how small your transaction is. If there's a UK nexus and it is within one of the mandatory sectors, you will still have to file. And importantly, while we talk about foreign investment, this regime isn't actually a foreign investment regime. You will not find any definition of foreign investor in the Act. And this means that UK companies will also be subject to the regime and will have to file in the same way as other companies do, albeit that we'll expect that only very few transactions involving a UK acquirer will actually give rise to a full-scale national security review. And Michelle, there's been talk about the UK, I guess, becoming more hostile to certain types of foreign investment. And, you know, only in the past few few days, uh, CGN, the Chinese SOE nuclear business, has been in the headlines regarding its current and future investments in the UK. But of course, at the same time, the government's sort of making it clear that it's still open for business. So how do you see things from a policy perspective? Is the act going to lead to a change in UK government policy on foreign investment? 
I don't think it will, Al. I mean, the government has been at pains to stress that in this post-Brexit world, the UK is very much open for business and is very much interested in attracting foreign capital to the UK. And it's no coincidence that at the same time as the National Security Bill was introduced to Parliament in that same week, the government launched the Office for Investment, which is very much focused on attracting foreign investment into the UK. All the UK is doing here is effectively playing catch up with the regimes of its allies across the world. The UK has been quite late to the party in terms of actually setting up a mandatory system. And strictly speaking, while we've had a national security system as such for the last 20 years or so, no deal has ever actually been blocked in the UK on national security grounds. And I'm not expecting that we're suddenly going to see a rash of prohibitions coming out of the UK. The government's rhetoric is very much focusing on investment that is from parties that may want to do harm in the UK. And I think they themselves are a little bit frustrated about the amount of hysteria that has been created around the regime and very quick to focus on the fact that it's only a minority of transactions that will end up in a full national security review and an even smaller number of transactions that will end up in remedies. So while it is critically important that companies assess the risks when engaging in, in any transactions involved in a UK nexus, it is going to be a very targeted regime and government is very focused on making sure that it's proportionate and that it's an effective regime so that for the vast majority of transactions that don't give rise to issues, the review should be swift and companies shouldn't be worrying too much about this regime derailing their transactions. Well, I guess that's sort of heartening to hear. And of course, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in practice. Christine, let me bring you in here. The, the new UK regime shares certain similarities to CFIUS in the US. Say, for example, the mandatory regime, which was brought in uh, under FIRMA a few years ago. C can you tell us what the experience has been in the US with, with the mandatory filing obligation? Yeah, I think that's right, Al. In the US, we had a voluntary regime for a long time, 20 years. And then the implementation of the mandatory regime in the US changed the risk calculus a bit. First of all, it made it harder to fly under the radar. And in some cases, we're seeing a highly technical analysis, even when there's no substantive issue, just to determine whether you fall under that mandatory requirement. The scope of the mandatory regime is not particularly well settled. And similar to the UK, the risk of failing to file is pretty high. It's a fine up to the value of the transaction. So this often results in a fairly cautious approach when doing the analysis. And I think we're seeing similarly on the policy front. The same agency that heads CFIUS in the United States is the Treasury Department and they lead on our U.S. investment policy. So the Biden administration similarly endorses an open for business policy. And so that's part of Treasury's mission. And Treasury does emphasize that CFIUS's remit is limited to protecting national security interests. But CFIUS's flexibility to determine the scope of what constitutes a national security interest can sometimes mean that in practice, the regime is not as limited. Okay, well, that's interesting to learn. And 
I just want to move to sort of a really practical aspect to ask you, Michelle, and that's as follows. As I understand it, whilst the Act isn't yet in force, it can still capture deals today. And so can you tell us what that means for, for maybe deals that have recently completed or will do so before the magical 4th of January 2022? Sure. So what's this all about? It's because once the government announced its plans for this legislation, they were concerned that we didn't see a rash of deals being completed quickly to avoid the jurisdiction of the new regime. So to act as a deterrence to companies trying to get deals done below the radar and and without scrutiny from the regime, when the legislation was led before Parliament, the government announced that they would have retrospective powers to be able to call in any transactions that completed in the period between 12th of November last year and the new regime actually commencing. And that was so that parties would know that they wouldn't be able to guarantee that they would avoid scrutiny by the UK government just by rushing to complete a deal in that interim period. So as well as this ability to look back to transactions that have completed in the time period before the new regime comes into force, the Act also gives the government a five-year retrospective power to call in any deals that complete and that haven't come to the government's attention. If you are a party that has done a deal and you make an effort to make the Secretary of State aware of that transaction, this five-year period is reduced to six months. And because of that, and because of parties wanting legal certainty and not wanting their transactions sort of hanging out there at risk of a review in five years' time, we have seen lots of parties who've been completing transactions in this interim period actually choosing to engage with the investment security unit at Bayes, which is the unit that is going to be responsible for running the regime going forward, to discuss with them transactions and to also get some informal comfort from Bayes that that transaction will not be called in for a national security review once the new regime commences. And in our experience, there has been a real willingness at Bayes to engage with companies doing transactions. You know, they know this is all new. They want to make sure that this regime gets off to the right start. And they have actually been incredibly helpful in our experience in speaking to parties about deals and in being willing actually to give some comfort to parties completing deals and in this interim period that their transaction isn't a transaction that is likely to be called in for a review once a new regime comes into force. That's sort of interesting to hear from the U.S. perspective because Sophia's historically has been pretty reluctant to show its cards. So getting informal guidance, particularly on the issue of whether a transaction is likely to implicate national security interests, getting reliable information from them and feedback from them is, is, is quite rare. It's interesting, Christine, and, and I do wonder whether we will still see this willingness two or three years from now, once parties have actually had experience under the regime. I think Bay sees this as important because they they want this regime to get off to the right start. They are very focused on making sure that in having this regime, they are, you know, balancing the obvious need 
to protect UK national security interests, but at the same time not to deter investment. And so for the moment, they are very sympathetic to the uncertainty that's being created by the introduction of this new regime. And, and, and they're very willing to assist parties. But as you said, it'd be interesting to see if they're still willing two or three years down the track once we've all seen how the regime plays out in practice. Michelle, one last sort of practical question on the UK regime. You talked about deals that have already completed, but prior to the regime coming into sort of full force. What about deals that have already been announced and are in flight, or perhaps they haven't even been announced yet, but ones that will complete after the 4th of January? What rules will the government use, the existing ones or, or the future ones? It's an interesting question, Al, and there are a number of transactions in the market at the moment where there is this question as to will the government wait until the new regime comes into force in January to intervene, or actually will they use their existing powers under the Enterprise Act to issue a public interest intervention and intervene and sort of kick the process off already? The firm message that we've heard from government is that the government if it sees a potential national security issue, is not going to wait around and delay any intervention, given the importance of making sure that UK national security interests are protected. And so we have seen interventions recently, for example, in the NVIDIA arm transaction, where the government has intervened under its existing powers. I think as we get closer and closer to January, the question will become more difficult, I think, for government in terms of how it chooses to react to transactions. I mean, the rules are that if the government issues an intervention under its existing powers, then the new regime no longer applies and and we operate under the existing regime. If they haven't issued a public intervention notice and the deal hasn't completed before the new regime comes into force, then it will be subject to the new regime. And I think there are going to be some interesting discussions between parties and governments because there are some obvious advantages to the new regime in that we're going to have fixed statutory timetables. Um, The current regime is quite open-ended. There's a lot of discretion given to the Secretary of State. So it may be that parties may prefer that the government does hold off and wait and use its new powers. But government is going to be the decision maker here. So let's see what happens in those borderline deals, which haven't yet completed before the new regime comes into force. Let's cross over the Atlantic and, uh, and just talk a little bit more, Christine, about the US. On our last podcast, we discussed that the Biden administration wasn't likely to make deals easier, particularly for Chinese investors. And now the administration's had some time to set sort of policy priorities. What are we seeing on that front? Well, I think we've seen the Biden administration expand the use of some of the tools that the Trump administration had employed. I think some examples for you are the Trump administration had banned Americans from trading in the stock of certain Chinese companies that they the administration designated as being linked to the Chinese military. And the Biden administration has expanded that list of companies. And the Trump administration had proposed an entirely new regulatory regime to review ordinary course acquisitions of Chinese telecom equipment, sort of completely unrelated to a broader M&A transaction. And the Biden administration allowed that rule to go into force. 
The Trump administration had been focused on access to sensitive personal data, uh, particularly uh, by Chinese companies, by seeking to ban TikTok and WeChat. And even though those orders have been rescinded as a result of a judicial challenge to them, the Biden administration nonetheless has ordered a review of all apps uh, that are controlled by, uh, quote, foreign adversaries. And of course, CFIUS continues to play its role in reviewing foreign investment, including of Chinese investment on national security grounds, including being particularly active in using its call-in authorities to look back and reach back to Chinese investments, particularly in critical technology companies that have already closed a couple of years ago. So we're seeing that sort of carryover, but I think we're also beginning to see a shift in policy focus from these tools that were aimed at stopping China to looking to advance U.S. domestic capabilities. The Biden administration, for example, they issued a supply chain security report that focused on a number of important sectors for future growth and, and capabilities, including, for example, in the, uh, in the semiconductor sector. And, you know, sort of the upshot of that study was to announce greater U.S. government investment and sort of a strategic public-private approach to increasing U.S. domestic capabilities on these fronts. And so how do you see this sort of shift in policy impacting CFIUS reviews? So CFIUS, you know, CFIUS is only one tool and it, it only acts on the transaction before it. So it's, it's not well suited for employing general policy objectives. But these U.S. government policies do trickle down and show up in reviews. For example, you know, we see a greater focus on supply chain security issues during reviews. And we expect to see increased mitigation focused on sort of keeping our strategic R&D and manufacturing onshore. Turning to the EU now, Ord, I wanted to ask you about the EU's foreign investment screening regulation, which came into a force about nine months or so ago. Are you seeing um, FDI reviews gain momentum across the region? Yes, clearly we have seen a lot of developments. To give you some figures, Today, we have 18 EU member states with a foreign investment regime in place in the EU. And since the EU screening regulation came into force last October, there are dozens of vetting requests notified to the European Commission. To give you an idea of this scale, according to a senior EU trade official, the number of foreign investment notifications received by the Commission would be comparable to the number of merger notifications. Now, if we look at the review process at the EU level and uh, its potential impact on the review timetable of transactions, when a foreign investment notification is filed to uh, EU member states, this member state will send the notification most of the time together with another form describing the investment and the parties to the Commission and the other member states to inform them about uh, the investment so that the Commission and the other member states can provide their non-binding comments on the transaction. But some member states, within a prescribed time frame, can also request for information to 
the member states notifying the transaction. In that case, the member states will then pass the request onto the notifying party to uh, get the response to those requests. In practice, we have noticed that this cooperation mechanism can have a significant delay impact on the review timetable of transactions. And for, for instance, Austria seems to be one of the member states which regularly issues requests for information on foreign investment, uh, regardless of whether they have an Austrian nexus. Besides, we have seen a lot of countries introducing recently new foreign investment regime or considering the introduction of new regime or considering an extension of their current regime. Alongside the duplication of uh, foreign investment uh, regime, we have also noted that in a number of countries, national authorities have taken a broad approach, generally considering transactions that touch on a sensitive sector to trigger mandatory filing, even when there is only a limited nexus to the jurisdiction in question. And Odd, you mentioned that there are already 18 regimes within uh, the union, but that there are others, I think, being contemplated. Uh, Are there any particular ones that that are worth flagging? Yes, it's true. EU member states are very active in the field of foreign investment regulations. Lately, we have seen recent developments in a number of member states, such as Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Denmark or Slovakia. But for instance, Germany, which is a country very active in the review of foreign investments, has again extended the scope of the screening powers of the German authority. The new rules, which came into force in May 2021, aim to cover more strategic sectors, such as critical technologies, artificial intelligence or autonomous vehicles, and also to cover more transactions. For instance, the acquisition of control in the form of board seat or information rights may now trigger for investment review, even if the relevant voting rights thresholds of 10 or 20 or 25% are not met. And so you mentioned that there's a huge degree of activity in the field of foreign investment with either existing regimes or, or regimes that are about to reform or even even new regimes coming in. But, but what about enforcement in terms of actually reviewing transactions? Are you seeing deals actually being blocked at the moment? Yes, even though it's true that prohibition decisions remain rather rare. We have seen uh, over the past few months an increase of uh, prohibition decisions. For instance, we had the French prohibition of the acquisition of Photonis by Teledin, or the German prohibition of Adsino by Kasik, a Chinese company. And again, more recently, we have seen the French Minister of the Economy, Bruno Le Maire, preventing two transactions without even having opened a formal review of those transactions. It was the case for the acquisition of the French food retailer Carrefour by the Canadian company Couchetard or the acquisition of a business branch of Iveco by a Chinese company. So it's interesting to note that in those two cases, the French Minister of the Economy has expressed his disapproval in the press to those transactions 
by just invoking the protection of industrial and of food sovereignty. I think it's an important point to remind ourselves that even with these existing regimes, that, that sometimes deals are actually are still being prevented you know, outside of the regimes through other political mechanisms. And Michelle, just turning back to the UK, are you seeing similar trends? No, not so far in as uh, insofar as you're talking about prohibitions, Al. As I mentioned earlier, the UK has never prohibited a transaction on national security grounds, albeit that there were a couple of transactions involving Chinese acquirers that were abandoned in the face of a, a public interest intervention. It remains to be seen how transactions will be reviewed under the new regime. But the direction of travel from government is is very much that we shouldn't be expecting a change in policy. One thing is for sure, though, is the current government is quite unpredictable. And there has been increasing political interference in transactions from the perspective of there's always a, a constituency MP or an editor in the Daily Mail or the, any of the national newspapers who likes to comment on these sorts of transactions and, and we'll see what is going on in France and in Germany and the like. So never say never. But I think this new regime is being launched, certainly not with the intention of blocking transactions. If, if anything, it may be just trying to deter hostile foreign investment and hope that knowing transactions will be subject to review will be enough to, to deter it. But but let's see what happens in practice. Yeah, and I would, I would add that even in the US, right, prohibitions, actual formal prohibitions are still also uh, quite rare. But we do see a bit of an uptick of transactions that are voluntarily, quote, abandoned in light of CFIUS opposition. So CFIUS can sort of get the desired results even without a formal order. I think one thing that, that is interesting, though, Al, is perceptions around how the government will react to a particular transaction, because we certainly see in auction situations, sellers being quite nervous about transactions involving acquirers from, from certain countries. And I think that is something that um, some international investors are struggling with a bit because even given the likelihood that the government will not have an issue with the deal when sellers are doing their sort of risk analysis and focused on execution, they're obviously wanting a deal that they know is going to be done. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of some of the premiums that are expected for businesses because I think people are increasingly pricing in the risk of these sorts of reviews and particularly which we're seeing more often and certain sort of transactions that we do where your transactions will touch multiple jurisdictions. The number of deals that we do at the moment where you're in the double figures in terms of the investment regimes you have to navigate and so that can be daunting, I think, to sellers. And it makes it really important that when you're considering these transactions that you're thinking through all the permutations because sometimes it's not about convincing the governments to allow the deal to happen, but convincing a seller that they should take the risk on you as a purchaser. And, and that's a, a critical thing, I think, that businesses are going to have to navigate going forward. No, that's great advice, Michelle. Maybe odd from an EU perspective, what would you be advising clients who are, you know, looking to undertake some M&A, you know, bearing in mind the increasing number of regimes? And as Michelle said, 
often deals that are requiring double digit uh, notifications? Uh, first, I would say that investors should carefully watch the uh, development of uh, foreign investment uh, regimes across Europe or in the rest of the world. In addition, investors should uh, be prepared for an increase of formal requirements concerning foreign investment notifications. For instance, we have noticed that some national authorities require bilingual notifications or and specific forms in order to facilitate information sharing with the Commission and other, the other member states. We have seen over the past few months notification forms being sometimes changed almost overnight. In terms of timing, investors should also take into account longer review timelines when planning their deals. Even if the Commission stressed that most cases have been resolved within 15 days, we have also seen some cases where national authorities had to issue additional requests to the parties in order to extend their legal deadline to issue a decision. Finally, I would say that companies should also anticipate a more thorough review of their deal by national authorities. Christine, anything additional to say from a US perspective? Yeah, I think on the practical front, we're seeing some progress in some areas and some difficulties in others. With the institution of the mandatory regime and the expansion of CFIUS's sort of already broad jurisdictional authorities, Congress had allocated some uh, significant additional funds to increase the staffing to handle the influx of cases. And, you know, sort of after a bit of a bump in the road, when the rules came into effect, things seemed to have smoothed out a lot better recently. And so CFIUS is sort of able to get through their reviews in a, in a more efficient manner. CFIUS is actually reviewing approximately 100 more filings a year on average since FIRMA was passed. But even more importantly, they're identifying over 100 cases, you know, non-notified cases every year. And using their call-in authorities on approximately 15% of those, that's a pretty significant uptick in the amount of non-notified transactions that they now have resources to identify and having enough resources to actually call in 15% of those cases. That's a direct result of the additional funding that the committee has received. And those statistics kind of you know, show why it's a little bit harder to fly under the radar these days if you choose not to notify your deal on a voluntary basis. So we also had this institution of the declaration, which is a bit of a more simplified form, which makes it a little easier to get the clock started quicker. But the offsetting point when you file the declaration is that CFIUS tends to issue quite a few RFIs in the sort of shorter 30-day review period, and that can put a lot of pressure on businesses who have to respond to those RFIs within two business days. And then one other point I would note is that the amount of mitigation we're seeing has increased. And CFIUS also has additional funding for its monitoring resources. And so there's a larger staff dedicated to monitoring your compliance with mitigation agreements. And so that results in companies themselves also having to increase the amount of resources that they're dedicating to compliance. 
insidious mitigation agreements, essentially they don't sunset. And so, you know, you're kind of taking on a, a lifelong compliance commitment when you sign up for a mitigation agreement. So I think those are some important practical points for, for companies to keep in mind. We probably need to call time on this shortly, but uh, we started with the, the UK. So, Michelle, maybe I'll give you the last word from a UK perspective. Thanks, Al. Well, I was interested in what Christine was saying about resourcing, because the volume of transactions that we're expecting to trigger mandatory notification in the UK, given how wide the regime is, notwithstanding that it has been tightened up in a number of ways, still runs into the thousands. And I think this is going to be one of the real challenges for government. When you consider the number of filings that the CMA deals with in a year, what are the resources that are going to be dedicated to that ISU team? And it's so critically important because a big part of the government's messaging has been that this will be a quick and efficient process. And the initial screening process is 30 working days, but government has been stressing, you know, that's the maximum. We're hoping to do things more quickly. But I do think there is going to be a real risk that the unit is overwhelmed and that may lead to delays. And I think that is definitely one of the factors that has led to the commencement being pushed back. But we will have to see how it goes. And we all hope that the resources will be there and in place. But I think it's really important whether you're dealing with the UK or any of these regimes, that companies really do think carefully about the time that it would realistically take to get through all these regimes. There's always a certain amount of uncertainty involved in foreign investment and making sure that your position is protected in your SPA, that your long stop dates are flexible enough to accommodate extended timelines, I think is going to be absolutely critical going forward. Look, thank you all for your insights. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I, I hope you have too. As I mentioned, if you're interested in further information on developments in foreign investment review, then please take a look at our website at freshfields.com and also look out for our next podcast on this topic next quarter. Thanks very much.